The message I am preaching today is what God has been teaching me this last year. Not even through seminary, just my personal study in God's Word and my continued sanctification. Uh, Travis has said this before, that if you want to preach a convicting message, you preach on prayer or evangelism. And so this morning, I have decided to do both in one message. But I must preface it with this, because I do not desire just to preach a message to be convicting. We've all heard those messages on prayer or evangelism, where the preacher takes a command from Paul or somewhere in the New Testament or even somewhere else in Scripture, and they use that to exhort the congregation to encourage them more and more to pray. If the preacher is really effective, we are convicted because we all know that we need to pray more. We all know that we need to evangelize more. So if the preacher is effective, then we are convicted to maybe pray a little bit more for the next couple weeks maybe even pray about evangelizing more instead of actually doing it. But after a few weeks, generally that conviction subsides and we go back to life, by and large, unchanged. It was actually a message on prayer at Grace Community Church that provoked my thinking on this issue and what caused me to study it on my own. I was convicted in my own life about my need to grow in prayer. One Sunday, a seminary graduate, he just graduated seminary, and he preached a message on prayer, exhorting the congregation to pray more as they should. It wasn't a bad message. There was nothing unbiblical about it. He genuinely wanted to encourage the congregation to pray more as they ought. But as I listened and reflected upon that message, I thought about why those messages didn't have a long-lasting effect, specifically in regard to my own heart. I took time just sitting, contemplating why those things did not have a long-lasting effect in my life. I asked questions of myself as, like, was it my own stubborn, immature heart Was it something that was lacking in so many of those exhortations to prayer that made them ineffective? Or was it just a little bit of both? And after much contemplation, I found within my own heart and mind that I often gave into the temptation to think that because God is sovereign, which is true and good and biblical, because God is sovereign, then came the temptation to think, therefore, I don't really need to pray. Because God is sovereign, He has His plan, and He is going to bring it about. Therefore, I don't really need to pray. And maybe it had a little bit of laziness in there too, and that was just a good excuse. But I often gave into the temptation to think that my prayers aren't really important because God is going to do what He wills anyway. Verses such as Isaiah 14.22, which reads, The Lord of hosts has sworn... As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Or in the same chapter, 1427, it says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? He has stretched it out, who will turn it back? Or even Proverbs 21, which many of you know, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. It was verses such as these which gloriously proclaim the sovereignty of God so clearly that my sinful nature twisted and tempted me to think that my prayers no longer mattered. This wrong thinking was emptying my mind, as you might assume, emptying my mind and heart of any motivation at all to prayer. And continuing in such a state I knew would never produce a thriving prayer life as the Bible says. And on the other side of this, there are verses which I knew, such as James 5.15, which says, the prayer of the faithful one will save the one who is sick. Or James 5.16, which says, the effective prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. And also James 4.2, which says, you have not because you ask not, alluding to prayer. 
There's so many more that we don't have time to cover regarding God's sovereignty, regarding the importance of prayer. But taking those two things into account, God's sovereign control on the one hand, bringing about His plan that He has purposed, and our prayers being effective on the other hand, the question is this. If God is sovereign and brings about His preordained plan, how can prayer be effective? If God has planned for each of us and is sovereignly directing our lives, what do our prayers do? So I began wrestling with the tension between those two things. And this message is the fruit of me wrestling in my own heart and mind on God's sovereignty and the effective prayer of the righteous accomplishing much, as James 5.16 says. So we're going to look at a passage today where I did not find the answer to how this works because it is a mystery. I'll give you the punchline right away. There is no answer to that. How do those things work together? It is a mystery. But we're going to look at a passage where I found this illustrated in the Old Testament. The Scriptures tell us that the Old Testament were examples for us to look back to. And the example for today is Moses in Exodus 32. So if you would, turn with me. Actually, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 15 just to get the context real quick. So we will see in Exodus 32 that while God is sovereign and in control of all things, the prayer of the righteous is effective. And I hope that this message provides you with a deep motivation to pray. The deep motivation to be diligent in your prayer life as it has motivated me as I have studied this. So Exodus chapter 15. And just to provide the context for this, most of you know this, God has just brought Abraham's descendants out of Egypt by supernatural plagues and miracles. God mightily drove back the waters of the Red Sea so the Israelites could pass on dry land, and then he effortlessly released those waters to crush the pursuing enemy, the Egyptian army who was pursuing the fleeing Israelites. He effortlessly crushed the Israelites' enemies. Miracle after miracle, provision after provision, God blessed Israel, even up to this very early stage. But the nation was a bunch of stiff-necked rebels who were inclined to sin rather than draw near to God and entrust Him. There is a very clear literary structure as Israel travers, travels from this point on, once they cross the Red Sea. The literary structure goes like this. Israel sets out from a certain place. They reach their destination. And then Israel's inclination to sin is manifest, usually in grumbling. In Exodus 15, Israel has just crossed the Red Sea. In verse 22, if you look, it tells us that Israel set out from the Red Sea. They traveled three days into the wilderness of Shur. And then the Scriptures tell us in verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? God miraculously provides cleansing for the bitter springs that they were by. And the narrative then says that they came to Elim. Then if you flip over a page to Exodus 16, it tells us that, here's our literary structure again, they set out from Elim about a month after leaving Egypt, and then they arrive at the wilderness of Sin. And as soon as they arrive, we are told in the narrative that they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Chapter 17, in verse 1, reads, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sins by stages according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. 
So do you see the pattern? Israel sets out from a place, they arrive, and then they publicly, corporately sin. And Exodus 19 begins the narrative of chapter 32, which we'll get to in a moment. Exodus 19 begins like the other chapters that we just scanned. And it says that they set out from Rephidim and they came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. Now with this literary structure, with this pattern already established, one would read this with an anticipation, an expectation of the next moment to be Israel sinning, grumbling against Moses and God for something. The lack of sin on Israel's part in the narrative, because it does not immediately follow, the lack of sin on Israel's part in the narrative in the established pattern ought to leave us with an anticipation regarding when it will come. But it does not come until chapter 32. So flip over with me to chapter 32. So just to set the scene and fill in the contents between 19 and 32, Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, or 39 at this point because he doesn't come down till the next day. He has been receiving instructions from God for the tabernacle for the Israelites to worship God on his terms. So Moses has been gone for 40 days, and the people of Israel grow impatient. Perhaps they didn't have anyone to complain to, and they wanted to improvise. We're not sure, but their inclination to sin brings them to this point. And that brings us to point number one in our outline, and that is this the predictable behavior. We expect what is coming next. If we've been paying attention to the narrative, we would be anticipating this moment. The predictable behavior of Israel. So the first point, this is going to cover verses 1 to 10 in Exodus 32. So let's read that and get that in our minds. When the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. In the first ten verses, uh, we're going to break it up into two subpoints. The first we've already seen demonstrated in the preceding context of Exodus. But that is subpoint A in your outline, Israel's inclination toward her sin. Israel is inclined to sin. And that's verses 1 through 6. Israel is inclined to sin and rebel against God because they are a stiff-necked people who don't trust God. Just like other times Israel traveled and stopped at a new location, 
she rebelled against God and sinned. The difference between this time and all those other times already covered is that Israel has received a portion of the law. Most of you know Exodus 20 contains the Ten Commandments. They had received the Ten Commandments from God. They had been commanded, do not fashion an idol. Throughout chapters 23 and 24, God is revealing more of His law to Israel, more of His commandments to them. And then in Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came, he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the statutes, and all the people answered with one voice. This is chapter 24. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The difference between the last bout of grumbling in chapter 19 and making an idol in chapter 32 is that Israel has received much of the law. They were specifically told, do not fashion an idol. Yet Israel was enslaved to her sin and she was inclined to sin, not inclined to please God. The giving of the law, even in just the Ten Commandments, it did not change the hearts of the people one iota. It only revealed the depravity of their hearts and the inability to follow God's law as we can all relate to when we were unbelievers. I mean, look at the depravity in verse 4. After Aaron fashions the calf, he says, These are your gods, O Israel. How audacious. This is months after God led them out of Egypt. Notice that they didn't fashion an idol and claim a new god. Rather, they wanted a physical form for Yahweh. The people continued, they intended to continue to worship Yahweh, but by bowing down to this calf. This is such a ludicrous idea. This, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And the lunacy of this whole thing is exemplified later, which we'll read, when Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do to you to make you do this? And I think Moses was hoping that they held a gun to his head or something, but no. That was not the case. Aaron had fallen into sin just the same, and he was even greater in his sin because he led all of Israel into it. Even with the law, even with the command, do not make an idol, Israel was still inclined to her sin. Even though they had good intentions to worship Yahweh with the form that they created, she was inclined to sin and could do no good. So we've seen Israel's inclination toward her sin. In verses 7 to 10, we see subpoint B, God's disposition against her sin. God's disposition against her sin. It's short enough, so let's just read 7 to 10 again to hear God's response to Israel's rejection of him once again. Starting in verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now it is easy to read these passages and passages like these and read them as if God is just like us. That he acts and reacts just like we do. That is to say, if my children were to rebel against me and offend me to the degree the Israelites have just offended God, I would be filled with anger and possibly, probably act out in that anger. 
but I would well up with anger as many of you can relate to. It just happens when we see something that angers us. But we must remember that God is not like us. God does not change, as Malachi 3.6 says. And Numbers 23.19 says that he does not change his mind like a man. When we sin against God, he does not swell up with anger like we do. He was not happy with Israel one moment, and then the next he was enraged at them. Why? Because God's anger towards sin does not change. God is immutable. He does not change. It does not increase. It does not decrease. God's disposition towards sin is steady anger as it has always been. A disposition is a state of readiness. It's a way of acting toward something. God's anger does not increase or decrease in passion like ours does, but is a fixed state of readiness to act. God knows all the sin we will commit. He is not surprised by it, but he does stand ready to act. And this passage here gives us a picture of God's disposition toward Israel's sin and towards all sin. He stands ready to act on his righteous anger and judge sin. But God, by his own gracious loving kindness, does not immediately act on sin all the time. He had mercy on Israel and did not punish her right away for her sin. And just as we are all walking, talking examples of God withholding what we deserve, examples of his mercy. So instead of immediately pouring out his wrath on them, God provided a mediator in Moses. Notice God himself says that there is something between him and the people of Israel. God tells Moses in verse 10, let me alone. You might paraphrase that by God telling Moses to let me be. Let me do what I said I was going to do to the Israelites. He recognizes, and we see in Scripture, that God has placed Moses between himself and the people of Israel. The point here is to show that God must punish sin. But at the same time, he puts a mediator between himself and those who deserve his wrath. That person in this account is Moses. And Moses, he doesn't shirk his responsibility. He doesn't hesitate. He acts immediately by petitioning God and to good effect. And that brings us to point two in our outline, the effective prayer. Point number two, the effective prayer. We're also going to break this up. This will have two subpoints. The first subpoint is Moses' intercession for her sin, her being Israel. Moses' intercession for her sin. And this is found in verses 11 through 13, so let's read that. Exodus 32, verses 11 to 13. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Notice that Moses had to pray this prayer because of the sin of Israel. But he does not mention the sin of Israel. He does not mention their stiff-necked tendencies, their inclination to sin. Moses appeals to God based on his character and based on the words of his own mouth. 
based on his character and the promises that God had already revealed in Scripture. And we have to remember that Moses has been given the only account of what has happened. In all the previous books, in Genesis and all of what has happened up till now, God has revealed to Moses all of his promises. He's the only one who knows the extent of God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And these things would be in the forefront of Moses' mind. Though years and years had passed, these were in the forefront of Moses' mind as God has just revealed them to him. And he's pleading with God based on his own character and based on his promises. So while Moses was concerned for the people of Israel, he was concerned for the glory of God more. Moses appealed to God saying that the pagan nation, specifically Egypt, would profane the name of God if he wiped Israel out. They would mock Israel. They would mock God for how God dealt with them in Egypt or in the wilderness, even though that is what Israel deserved. Moses also appealed to God based on what God had already told him. He appealed to the promises that God made to make Israel a great nation and lead them to the promised land. And there's much here that we could learn from Moses' prayer, but for time's sake, what I want us to take away from the content of Moses' prayer is this. We should, as you guys have been going through, I don't know if you're done yet with the Lord's Prayer. I think you're done. But as you've gone through that, you have learned to pray as God teaches His people to pray. And I think Moses is an example of someone we can follow his example in prayer. We need to pray as Moses prayed. And just as an example, Moses was praying, appealing to God based on his character and his promises concerning a rebellious people. So just as an example, when you pray for unbelievers, you pray appealing to God based on his loving kindness and his relenting love when one repents. And you pray verses such as 2 Peter 3.9, which says, God desires none to perish. We should be praying those things for unbelievers. We should follow Moses' example here in prayer. But we don't have time to dissect the content of Moses' prayer, but I just want you to take that away. You can follow that example as a prayer to pray for unbelievers not focused on them, but focused on God, asking Him to withhold His wrath. But setting all that aside, as kind of a side note, what I want to focus on here, as I said, is not the content. That's an entirely other sermon. But what I want to look at real quick here is why the prayer was effective. The prayer was effective, first of all, because it was God's will. God ordained it. Moses did exactly what God placed him in that position to do. And that is to mediate between God and the people of Israel. God called Moses for this very moment. For others as well, but this is paramount. And why is this occasion special? Because as we read in Scripture elsewhere, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Look how selfless Moses is. God just said that he would relieve Moses of having to deal with a stiff-necked, rebellious, grumbling, nonstop people. Forget the bonus of God promising to make him the sole heir. It would be enough just to be relieved of having to lead that group of grumbling people any longer. Moses was in part chosen for this specific occasion, ordained to be there because no one else would have prayed this prayer. No one else would have put the glory of God, God's glory and God's word above his own well-being. 
no one else would have put God's glory and God's word above his own well-being. Look at Aaron's example. No one else would have considered God's word and God's glory as being more precious than being the sole heir of promise. Except Christ himself, to which Moses is a foreshadow and a type. No one else would have cared about God's glory and his word more than being the sole heir to what God was going to give them. So the focus for our purposes here is that Moses rose to the occasion and prayed a selfless, righteous prayer. He was a selfless, righteous mediator between God and Israel. Yes, it was God's will, but he knew what he needed to do and he did it. And it was effective because it was God's will and because he knew that that's what God had planned. What was the outcome of Moses' prayer? We see this in verse 14, and this is subpoint B God's compassion toward her sin. God's compassion toward her sin. If Moses had not prayed this prayer, Israel would have been wiped out. If Moses had not stood between God and Israel, God would have wiped them out. In the same way as if Christ had not come and died on the cross, we would all still be in our sins. Or as Paul said, if Christ was not raised, we would all still be in our sins. And though these are all hypothetically impossible, none of those things could have happened. It was not possible for Christ to not have died because it was God's will. It is still true to say that if Moses had not prayed this prayer, God would have wiped them out. So Moses had to have prayed this prayer. Moses had an effect. Moses' prayer stayed the wrath of God from the people of Israel. Exodus 32:14, we see God's compassion toward her sin. It says, "And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people." Now, if you happen to still be using a New Living Translation or you hold to the old faithful New American Standard, they both translate this verse the same. And in my opinion, it is not a good translation. I already referenced Numbers 3.29, but both the NLT and the NASB translate this verse as... So the Lord, that is Yahweh, changed his mind. And I already referenced Numbers 23, 19, but I'm going to quote it here. It says, God is not man that he should change his mind. So we can't have God does not change his mind and God changed his mind. God does not change. We know this. Now, after learning Greek and Hebrew, I can tell you that as hard as the NASB is sometimes to understand, it is the best English version to represent what the original says. It's hard to get better than that. But I don't know what happened here. The Hebrew word here translated as the Lord relented or the Lord changed his mind, is the Hebrew word naham. And with this, this is a passive verb, and with this specific passive verb form, it can mean to regret, or to be consoled, or to be comforted. And I think the key with this verb is that it's in the passive. The focus is that Moses' prayer had an effect. In regard to understanding this verse, I think the Septuagint shed some light on it. The Greek Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Jews took the Old Testament and they translated it into Greek, and that is the Septuagint. 
And the Greek translation of this verse, this is just my translation of it, um, was Yahweh was, and these are the words that the Greek uses, propitiated. Yahweh was propitiated. So Yahweh was appeased concerning the disaster he spoke of bringing upon Israel. Yahweh was appeased by Moses. Yahweh was appeased by Moses and he had mercy. Of course, as already mentioned, all this was according to God's sovereign plan. He called Moses here for such a time even though Moses never wanted to be there in the first place. One thing we do know, God does not change his mind. God was appeased or propitiated by Moses. So God was sovereign in bringing about all that he had planned and Moses' prayer was effective to stay the wrath of God. And praise God that both these things are true. Now I understand that there is a tension here between these two things. If God has planned all things, that he sovereignly brings them about, how is it that our prayers are effective? And I get that there is a tension there between those two things. And as I already mentioned, that there, that is a mystery that we do not understand on this side of heaven and that we may never comprehend because we cannot comprehend everything in the mind of God. And while there is a tension, there is not a contradiction in the two they are not mutually exclusive, but we also do not fully understand how it works. We must stand with one solid foot on the ground of God's sovereignty and the other on the sure proclamation of God's word that our prayers are effective and that you have not because you ask not. The Bible very clearly asserts both. Both truths very clearly, and we cannot cut the tension between both of those by saying that our prayers don't really matter, or that God has sovereignly planned all things and our prayers don't matter, or that God, you know, is just not in control. So our prayers can be effective. We have to understand that while it's hard to grasp that God doesn't change his mind and that he's in control of all things, we cannot fall one way or the other. And we also must understand that if both of those things are not true, if God's sovereignty is not true and our prayers being effective are not true, if either one of those things are not true, then that nullifies prayer. I already spoke of what happened in my own heart when you fall into the temptation of believing that God is sovereign so we don't need to pray. Obviously, that nullifies prayer. But what about God being changeable enough to affect what he does. That also nullifies prayer. Because if God is not sovereign, if he does not divinely work out all things, if he does not have the power to do all those things as he has planned, then we cannot be certain he has the power to do anything that we ask of him. And we also don't have the certainty that he won't change his mind again or again, or again. God has sovereignly ordained all things from the beginning before the foundation of the world, and our prayers are effective. And the tension that is here between God's sovereignty and our prayers being effective is the same exact, the exact tension that is between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. God has sovereignly elected those whom he has willed, and yet every single person is responsible to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. That is the same tension here. And we can't cut that tension by going one direction or the other. If you do so, you forsake half the scriptures either direction. 
So we have seen Israel's inclination to her sin. We've seen God's disposition against her sin. And we have seen Moses petition God. And we have seen God's merciful response to withhold judgment. That brings us to our third and final point in our outline, the inevitable action. The inevitable action. This is a large section. It could probably be broken up into more subpoints, but just to keep it simple and for time's sake, we're going to have two subpoints for this as well. Subpoint A is Moses' indignation for her sin. Moses' indignation for Israel's sin. Now we're going to read verses 15 to 23. And the heading, Moses' indignation for Israel's sin, is just not sufficient to summarize that, but it's just for a small portion that we're covering today. So just bear with me as I lump that all under Moses' indignation for Israel's sin. Um, but Exodus 32, 15 to 34. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, the tablets that were written on both sides, on front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold to take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now, now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So Moses comes down the mountain. And even though God had already told him what the people of Israel were doing, the sin that they had committed, his anger burned hot and he reacted and threw the tablets of stone out of indignation and disbelief at the people's sin. Right away, he has the golden calf ground up and he makes the people drink it. 
And I still remember Josh Odie preached this sermon a couple years ago and made the observation that Moses did this. He ground up the gold and put it in water and made the people drink it so that later the refuse, they would see what they were worshiping, that they were worshiping in comparison to Yahweh dung by worshiping that golden calf. Very astute observation. But notice also the difference between Aaron's appeal to Moses and Moses' appeal to God. Aaron's is a man-centered appeal. He basically says that Moses, that's just the way the people are. And basically that Moses should just accept that that's the way the people are. This had no effect on Moses because it had no weight. Moses knew that they were inclined to sin, but that was not going to stay the wrath of God. Moses knew the wrath of God was coming. And just accepting that the people were sinners was not good enough for Moses. Moses' indignation toward the sin of Israel did not first lead him to judge the people of Israel and have them slaughtered. He just petitioned God to spare the Israelites. And so he was going to take advantage of that Though Moses soon had 3,000 men slaughtered by the Levites, first he called them to repentance. Look at verse 26. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. So Moses' anger at their sin did not first lead him to act against them, but to call them to repentance. And this is a lesson for all of us as well. When we are rightfully indignant at the blatant sin of unbelievers around us, our first instinct should not be to act against them, to speak down to them, to deride them, Rather, our first instinct should be to pray that God stay His wrath from them and call them to repentance and share the gospel with them. Like Moses, we know that the wrath of God is coming. Our indignation is nothing compared to the wrath of God that is coming for them. And therefore, we ought to be, as Moses, compassionate we ought to be driven to pray for them and call them to repentance. Now there's a connection here that I want to draw. This is partly where the evangelism aspect comes in. There is a direct correlation here between the people we pray for, the people that we petition God to save, and the people that we take the initiative to called to repent and share the gospel with. Moses poured his heart out to God in prayer on Israel's behalf. He knew that the future of Israel's state depended on that. So he prayed his heart out to God on their behalf. And Moses did not want that prayer to be for nothing. It drove him to go down the mountain and call the people to repentance. And in the same way, when we pray for unbelievers, and I'm not talking about specifically just the world, you know, praying that God would save everyone in the world, specifically praying for people by name, our kids, our mothers, our fathers, our brothers, our sisters, whatever it is, when we pray that God would stay His wrath from them to give us time to call them to repentance as Moses did, that will motivate us more than anything to call them to repentance. Because we have labored over them in prayer. We don't want that to be for nothing. 
And when we regularly pray for God to stay his wrath from people and give them a chance to repent, then God's judgment of sinners is always in the forefront of our minds. So often we forget that God's judgment is coming for those we love who are not saved. And as we pray for them and recognize that God's judgment is coming, that keeps that in the forefront of our mind and it motivates us to share the gospel with them. When we spend time laboring over people in prayer, that will be enough motivation for us to evangelize. So many of us, including me, struggle with evangelism. We see oftentimes as evangelism is something that we need to do, but we don't really want to. Maybe even we see it as a chore or something that we have to work on. But when we labor over people in prayer like this, it's not a chore, it's a joy to call them to repentance and share the gospel with them. God himself will motivate our hearts if we pray. And that brings us to our final subpoint, and that is Yahweh's action against her sin. Yahweh's action against her sin. Exodus 32, verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So this plague, we aren't given any information about how many people died or what happened. And I think it's just, not that it didn't happen, but I think it's an allusion to a greater judgment coming. God's judgment is coming. A plague is coming for all those who have not repented. And though God stayed his wrath for a time, for Moses to be able to call them to repentance, so is his wrath stayed for a time now. But make no mistake, God stands ready to judge every sinner and every sin. His ultimate judgment will come and only those on his side will survive the judgment. And so I just plead with you, if you're here today and you have not repented of your sins, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted him, trusted in what he did for you, if you have not done that, you stand in the place of Israel. You are inclined to sin. You are enslaved to sin and you can do nothing that pleases God. And His wrath is coming. And so I plead with you today to repent of your sins and trust in the saving work of Christ. That He died on the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve. and that Jesus Christ is the only way of escape from God's wrath. Forsaking yourself, taking on His righteousness and trusting in Him, God will pass over you in judgment. Now in conclusion to this, to tie it all back together before we close, I hope you see the importance of prayer as we have looked at Moses praying for the Israelites. If Moses had not prayed that prayer, Israel would have been wiped out. And it would be easy for me to conclude today with this message by just exhorting you to pray. Look at the scriptures and see the importance of prayer. Or I might even say things like, how can you look at this and see this and not pray more. But I don't think that's the right exhortation. I don't think that's going to have a long-lasting motivating effect. And I don't want to convict or guilt anyone into thinking 
that they need to pray more, so it just they pray more for a couple weeks and that subsides. We all know we need to do it more. But what I want to do is motivate you to pray more by pointing out the implication of these two truths. And what I want you to take away from today is this one implication. If you hear nothing else, if you're asleep, wake up. I want you to hear this. Okay, the implication of God's sovereignty and man's prayers being effective, if God has sovereignly ordained all things and our prayers are effective, the implication is this. What we pray for is an indication of what God is doing in our life. What we pray for is an indication of what God is doing in our life. Now, that is not to say that whatever we pray for, God's answer is yes. But as we make a list of unbelievers to pray for, as we make a list of things to pray for our family, our spouse, our kids, that is an indication of what God is doing in our lives because he has planned it. What we pray for is an indication of what God is doing in our life. In the life of Grace Church, we are all as church members. Josh did a message a few weeks ago on being a good church member, and I was listening to, we just had a church member meeting at our church in California, and they exhort these church members, they stand up here, and they tell people, they tell people, um, you know, will you do this? Will you do this? And they commit to that. And one of those things is, will you commit to praying for the church? And then, I don't know if Travis does this here, but John MacArthur does it. He looks at the congregation and he has us stand and he says, will you commit to pray for those people who are up here for this church? It's kind of reaffirming, reminding everyone of their commitment to the church. And that just made me think again of the importance. And that's because obviously John in his maturity knows the importance of prayer. But I was convicted once again of specifically in regard to my own local church having the responsibility to pray because that is an indication of what God is doing. And if what we are praying is an indication of what God is doing, that is going to motivate us to pray for more and more and more. Because every one of us, everyone who is a true believer, wants to see God work in their life more and more and more. And the way that we can be certain that God is doing that is by praying for it. Because that is an indication of what God is doing. And I specifically want to charge you who are parents, just as we've looked at this message For Moses, every one of you who is a parent, you stand in the place of Moses. You are leading a very small congregation of grumblers and complainers. I know you know that. I do. But you stand in the place of Moses. You must follow his example. And for everyone, we must be in prayer because that is an indication of what God is doing in our lives, in the life of our church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise You that You are sovereign and in control, that You are omnipotent, that You have the power to bring about all that You plan, even the death of Your Son on the cross, Lord. As Acts 4 tells us, you planned that and you brought it about. And I just pray that you impress this one implication in the hearts of people here that what they're praying for is an indication of what you're doing in their life. And I just pray that that motivates them to pray more, Pray for unbelievers because that will motivate them to share the gospel. Lord, I pray that we are all like Moses, that we are humble 
and meek enough like Him to pray selfless prayers to our own detriment for those around us, for the congregation that You have chosen. And I thank You for the faithfulness of the elders here to labor over this congregation as they did this morning in prayer. I thank You for them because I know that is what You're doing in this church. Lord, I also thank You that there is this mystery that You're sovereign and yet our prayers are effective, Lord. That You are incomprehensible. That though we don't understand everything completely in Scripture that we find, we can trust that You are good and that You're bringing about Your will for the good of those who love You. Thank You, Lord, for all that You're doing here at Grace and Greeley. In Jesus' name, amen.